Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, guy who always hits it to the right, here's the truth. You don't need to change your swing to get more distance. You just need the Callaway Big Bertha B21 to help straighten out the distance you already have. The new Big Bertha driver is built to reduce side spin and straighten out your drives. And the irons are so forgiving, you can practically hit them anywhere in the face, and the ball just launches. This is distance any way you swing it. Unlock your inner distance today at callawaygolf.ca slash bigbertha. Reading a magazine the other day, I was struck by a report that life in many parts of China has essentially returned to normal, or is returning much faster than it is here. There's been some discussion about how authoritarian and semi-authoritarian governments are better equipped to manage the impacts of COVID-19, basically because they can order people to stay inside their homes or wear a mask. This week on Down to Business, I'm joined by Anindya Sen, an economist at the University of Waterloo, who's been studying how consumer behavior in Canada has changed during the pandemic. Consumer behavior is an interesting proxy for how we interact with the government, and Sen made a pretty arresting observation. He said most Canadians actually started staying home long before their provinces told businesses to shut down. So what's the takeaway? It means that in Canada, the government needs to think about people's perception of risk when it crafts shutdown orders. The conclusions he made are drawn from data that Google made public about where people are going and which Sen and a few of his colleagues studied. It should have an impact on the way our government manages the pandemic going forward, Sen said, because if the government orders bars to close, for example, the people who've been frequenting those bars may just move their party to a private house. It's one of several topics we discussed in a conversation about what's going to happen to storefronts in cities and malls and suburbs. During the last recession, we saw the birth of the so-called gig economy, companies like Uber and Airbnb that convince people to monetize their houses and cars. And Sen talked about where he sees opportunities as this recession takes hold. Anindo Sen, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I was out running last night and I was pretty surprised because I saw so many people were out in restaurants and bars. They were on the sidewalk. You could smell good food. And it was a pretty stark contrast to what I've seen at other times when I've wandered around and noticed that there are a lot of empty storefronts and closed shops. Can we begin just by maybe talking a little bit about what's happening to retail right now during this phase of social distancing? Sure. I think what we're seeing during the pandemic is just the acceleration or evolution of trends that were already underway. Pretty clear that conventional retail was under pressure. When you look at the picture, it's, it's very clear that consumers do value their time. And if they feel that they're getting a good deal and the information on websites are clear, they're more likely to make purchases through e-commerce and through websites. I think that if you go to a restaurant, you go for an experience, but it does get expensive. And therefore, that explains 
the booming business enjoyed by Uber Eats and DoorDash. Even pre-pandemic, we were seeing an evolution of the retail business landscape, and the pandemic has just accelerated that evolution. It's really nice to go for a walk or go to a mall and see people purchasing things and seeing businesses make money. But I think that there has to be a significant rethink by businesses of how they efficiently use retail space to sell goods and services to customers. Yeah, it's very interesting because the way you characterized it, the pandemic is really sort of incidental to this decline. And this decline is really about the internet and how people have come to rely on the convenience of the internet. But do you expect the pandemic to really accelerate this trend to the extent that we're just going to see an enormous number of empty storefronts? I think when you look at recessions historically, there are successful businesses which innovate and evolve and create new paradigms. And so if you look at the last recession in 2008-2009, it led to the evolution of the gig economy. And what I'm referring to is, say, if you have a house or a couple of rooms and you're not using all your rooms, you could probably list a room and Airbnb, for example. If you have a car, which you're not using all the time, maybe you can rent it out. So if you look at what's happening now, I think consumers are always mindful of the time they spend and consumers will be making choices on where they go and where they purchase from based on a feeling of security and safety. So if businesses respond to that, then you will see a new type of paradigm emerge. And so, yes, it is absolutely possible that for a short period of time, when you walk along the street, you might see empty uh, stores. But if there's another business which can use these assets efficiently, you may not see that persistence because as both of us know, uh, real estate is a is a strong asset, and I don't think it'll be lying around empty for a long time. So Google's been publishing this this data on our mobility. I think it's like how many people are going to bars and restaurants, how many people are going to grocery stores. I guess they're collecting this from our phones, although maybe you can tell me more about that. I know you published a paper on it, and I was wondering what that data told you about our shopping habits during the pandemic. Sure. So one good thing about the pandemic is the data released by some of the big tech companies like Google and Apple. If you're a Google user, you could have your location history switched on. And so wherever you go, Google has an idea of where you go. And this is especially true if you use Google Maps, for example. They don't, of course, release an individual's information, but they take all these millions of observations. And in Canada, uh, for example, mobility is, defined as number of visits to retail stores and recreational venues, grocery stores, workplace. And in the paper I've done with other colleagues at the University of Waterloo, and we've just submitted for academic reviews, is we've looked at how mobility has changed uh, across uh, Canadian provinces. And one finding is that if you look at say, Ontario and Alberta, which imposed emergency orders, basically restricting mobility and closing down retail stores. You see, of course, 
significant drop just after the pandemic began. But these drops didn't start when the emergency orders were implemented sometime in after the middle of March. And what is further interesting is that if you compare Ontario and Alberta, British Columbia, which didn't implement emergency order closures of retail stores, you saw a similar drop. Wait, sorry, just to back up a second. So you're saying that the, all this data told us that even before the Canadian government issued shutdown orders, you saw retail dropping off? So when you looked at what happened in Canada, borders started being shut in the beginning of March, right? Yeah. And we started getting news about the pandemic in January, February, but it wasn't until March things started getting serious for Canada. When you look at the data, what you see is a very sharp decline in mobility the day or the day after who announced a global pandemic. When you merge that data with trends in COVID infections, what's further intriguing is that the amount of mobility you see, especially, say, in retail stores, is impacted by the level of infections or cases that occurred yesterday or the day before. So the insights which we're getting from this research is telling us that, yes, of course, government action and regulation is important. But people are also cognizant and they're sensitive to the level of risk. And so if they perceive a high level of risk, they won't go out. Now, on the other hand, if you extend that analysis to what we see now, after some, uh, after some months, we are getting more knowledge of this disease. And although the ramifications of getting this disease are serious, especially for the elderly, it's not so grave for young people. And I think young people have um, bought that message. They believe that. And so you see plenty of data coming out which shows that most of the new cases are due to cases or infections among young people. So my point being, this type of belief or kind of consumer perception of being infected is important. It drives behavior and choice. And so that will be a factor going forward in terms of how successful retail stores are in attracting traffic to their storefronts. Right. I, I guess what you're saying is health officials might want to consider the fact that young people seem to be acting more on their own perceived risk than necessarily health guidelines. And so, therefore, when you look at what BC has done in closing bars, for example, you have to question yourself, is that the best strategy? Because closing bars may or may not send a message that cases of infection have serious ramifications. By closing bars, you're giving the incentive for young people to look at other types of entertainment where they may get into close quarters. So example, house parties. I mean, that's kind of worse. Right. And so you have to wonder that if that type of policy will force them into uh, other types of behavior, which actually lead to unintended and worse outcomes. I mean, why not stick to bars but uh, and give people a chance to be at bars, but be very mindful and careful about the regulations uh, you can impose on bars, say, in terms of uh, social distancing. So I think that's important to consider. Right, right. So just thinking about, this is more of a, a Canada-specific question, but it's it's not an understatement to say that when we're talking about retail, 
One shop that seems to be thriving is the cannabis store. When they legalized it, I, I almost didn't notice because I think there was like one or two stores in each province. But today I can literally throw a rock and hit like four stores on, on you know, just about any street. And I wonder if you've seen any data about how those stores are doing because there seem to be a lot opening. Sure. Unfortunately, we don't have um, data on publicly available data on finances of cannabis stores, uh, at least in Ontario, because they're they're privately run. And one possible, so there are a couple of reasons why you might see uh, more cannabis stores um, in your neighborhood. It could be demand, but I don't think it's it's demand because I think that the black market is flourishing and it's really easy for a lot of people just to get on their phone and download an app and um, order cannabis from a dealer. And I think that a reason why we're seeing more shops uh, pop up is just because um, there's there's been a backlog in terms of stores and businesses being approved to sell cannabis, and that's being cleared up a bit. I guess we'll have to wait and see how those stores do. Thinking even broader about the effect on retail, you mentioned gig workers at one point. A lot of gig workers you know, have lost work or have decided to accept one of the government programs to help them survive through the pandemic if they've lost work. Do you expect to see any impact on raising the minimum wage or making sure that people who are working in some of these stores in retail who aren't getting paid that much but are also putting themselves at health risk will see any sort of wage increase or do you expect to see more pressure for that building? I think so. I think there is a you know, conversation coming about what a livable wage is and what a fair wage is. I published a lot of research on minimum wage in Canada. And what I've done is I've matched changes in the minimum wage to uh, employment levels. And on average, what you see is that when you have significant um, increases in the minimum wage, then you see hirings drop, but specifically for uh, teens, uh, for youth age 15 to 19 years old. And so there are some employment effects from higher minimum wages. And that's that's intuitive because when a minimum wage goes up in the short run, what happens is that businesses have to respond. And if they can't pay the increased wage bill and if they're already at the margin and their revenues are not rising, then they'll respond by reducing shifts or cutting employees. Uh, and, and that's something which is which is expected. But. I think going forward and having seen how minimum wage workers have turned up to to work during the worst days of the pandemic, I think that that has led or should lead to a new evolved type of conversation where we try to match wages not just to say, education levels or the skill level that is required in a job. There's obviously an element of huge risk that minimum wage earners incurred in working, and they did work. And I think that should be reflected in how much they 
earn. And although many uh, companies did offer um, increased pay in recognition of this, that's gone now. And I really hope going forward that that becomes a part of the conversation. And it's not temporary anymore. Yeah. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how it all shakes out and whether the so-called gig economy changes. And I think something which we haven't directly touched, but you did bring up in terms of minimum wage, uh, it's a good idea to um, rethink how we deliver social assistance and, and benefits. There is a belief among some economists that given the wide number of programs we have and that are administered by different jurisdictions, which adds considerable costs, why not just have one uniform income, guaranteed minimum income? It it might actually wow. be cheaper. I mean, some some researchers have, I haven't studied the data myself, so I can't confirm that. But some researchers have actually said that is the case. And when you look at the differences in CERB payments and EI and the complexities uh, that are introduced by the existence of different programs, it's not that hard to believe. So now might be a good idea to just look at what we want as a society. Do we really need a lot of different programs? Would it be possible to have? guaranteed minimum income that is sustainable, obviously, less costly to administer. Would this be like a basic universal income? I think of universal income. Oh, yeah. Guaranteed universal income. It's an idea that's gaining a lot of currency. It's extremely controversial, and the devil's in the details. And we need to kind of evaluate how expensive would that be relative to what we have now. Anind, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about your research and thoughts on what's happening to retail during this pandemic. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Anindya Sen, professor of economics at the University of Waterloo. Thank you for listening and thank you to the team behind Down to Business, including Bryce Hall, who's responsible for the music in this podcast and the production, the editing by Yadula Hussein, and the web support by Pamela Heaven. Please consider sharing this episode with a friend and rating us on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, you can find all the latest news about the economy, trade, and business at financialpost.com. Hold up. 